Um, let's pray before we continue. Father, we bow before you. We know you're a God of mercy. We know, Father, that you are faithful even when we are not. We know that you're always there through our struggles and our trials. And uh, we do pray that you will not give up on us, that you will continue to help us to change, continue to lead us in paths of righteousness, Father, even when we don't want to. We pray, Father, that you will give us spiritual eyes to see our Jesus, to see what's around us, to have compassion, Lord, and to to live single lives, singleness of heart and mind. Lord, we just thank you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I guess my message is a little on a different theme. I mean, I just wanted to put that out there. It's simply a cry for for help. I think for for us all. I don't uh, I don't know what the direction is yet, but. I don't just want to live my life with doing the same things over and over and not getting anywhere, per se. <clears throat> so I felt um, I wanted to speak on mercy today and uh, where we would be without, where would we be without mercy, the mercy of God in our lives? And uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of important things in our life, but I do know that when we stand before God, we want one thing. We want mercy extended to us. We want God to be merciful to us. And we want to receive it. And like... Um, it says in Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is a love that responds to human need in an unexpected or unmerited way. At its core, mercy is forgiveness. And the second definition is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within our own one's power to punish or harm. There's a story that goes with this. It says, A mother sought from Napoleon the pardon of her son. The emperor said it was the man's second offense, and justice demanded his death. I don't ask for justice, said the mother. I plead for mercy. But, said the emperor, he does not deserve mercy. Sir, cried the mother, if it would, be, if it, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask. Well then, said the emperor, I will have mercy. And her son was saved. This little incident gives us a good idea of the meaning of mercy. We think of clemency as another word for mercy, but mercy is the gracious attitude of one who sits in the seat of authority toward one who has given offense by breaking of the law 
or by some violation of those canons of conduct which constitute offense. So grace, you could say, is the unmerited favor of God toward the undeserving. Mercy is his pitying kindness toward the hell-deserving. Grace bestows what we do not deserve. Mercy does not mete out to us what we deserve ourselves. That is mercy. It is a free gift given to us, even when we don't deserve it. So, I want to begin by looking at our Father. And one of the best examples in Scripture is where he shows us who he truly is and how our Father is and how he is like. Is when Moses asked God to show him his glory. And God told Moses that no man can see his face and live, but that he would pass by and he could see a glimpse of him. But what also is amazing is what he said when he passed by. He did not just pass by to be seen. He also spoke. And it says in Exodus 34, 5 and 6, it says, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. If you look at these verses, you kind of think that they're they're going against each other. But it is... That's, that's who God is. He begins by speaking of mercy for thousands, but also that the guilty will not be cleared. God hates sin more than any person, and his anger is to be feared. God's attitude is that sin and evil must be overcome and conquered in our life. By sheer power, he could destroy evil men, but this would be inconsistent with his love and mercy. God's primary goal is not to see that men are punished, but that they are saved. And as one bandit was asked if he had any enemies, and he said he had none because he had killed them all. And You know, God could take that approach as well. Children sometimes ask me in school, well, why doesn't God just get rid of the devil? And then, I mean, we'd be fine if he did that. But that is mere victory through power. If you look at our, if you look at people's, or if you look at the worst of humankind, If God were to do that, that is mere victory through power and not a victory through love. Because in the end, when they stand before him, 
and God has always outstretched his hand to them. In the end, they have no excuse. They have absolutely no excuse. God will punish the sinner, but before he does, he seeks all possible ways to win the sinner or the lost sheep back to the fold. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. This has ever been God's program of mercy. And one of the first questions of the Bible is God asking of Adam, Where art thou? Adam, where are you? And from that point on in the Bible, it's a story of a search. It's a search of God for all possible means to confront men with his mercy and his love. And God knows we are but dust. He knows the folly and sin of man and the advantage they will try to take of his love. But God still loves his people, all people, that even when he is forced to send judgment on them, his primary thought is on how to restore them to himself. And we can see this over and over. When God can no longer take it, you could say, he sends punishment. And its single purpose is to bring people back to himself. And maybe we can see it even in our own lives. That this is because he does not do these things to hurt us, but to bring us back to himself, because he is a God of reconciliation. It says here in Isaiah 54, 7 and 8, he says, For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing wrath, for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love will I have compassion on you. And when you hear this, what do you think? It should make us run to him even more, I think. God does not treat sin lightly, so no one can make a fool of him. He will judge and condemn but he is ever seeking a way to reconcile a sinner and grant them a merciful part. The wicked man is welcome on his dying day to say yes to God's mercy. And one of the th- people I always think about when you think of God's mercy as Judas Iscariot, getting to walk with Jesus and experience him personally for three years of your life is something we all just dream about. But this man had it. He walked with Jesus. But do you think, how in the world can you walk with Jesus and yet allow sin to overcome you? How is that even possible? I mean, you're listening to, to Christ each day And Christ spoke daily on sin and the effects of it. Judas chose his own path. He ignored Christ's word. And yet we see the response from Christ. He told him the truth. At one time, when he spoke to the disciples, he said, One of you is a devil. And... 
you can just picture yourself sitting in there. What, how would that make you feel if here's the Son of God and he's saying one of you is the devil, is the devil. And you, I don't know, I guess it didn't affect him much. He was so consumed with his sin that it just didn't affect him, it didn't faze him. And he went out and he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. If we're going to imitate Christ and his mercy, then we must recognize that it does not mean that we never judge or condemn sin. But it means that even when it is necessary to judge, that we do not write off the offender, but we do all we can to be reconciled. And uh, he's also given us a conscience in our lives. I think that's a mercy as well. And I think it's something that should be valued. It's not something that should be abused. And sometimes you may think of your conscience as a nuisance, keeping you from what you, what you want to do. But it's not. A conscience is a gift. And it's a gift of mercy that helps us walk in truth and righteousness. But we can surely destroy and sear our consciences through stubborn indulgences. But there is hope for even the worst of men. And God is more inclined to mercy than to wrath. Mercy is his attribute that he delights in displaying to man. And we can prove that with scripture. He doesn't delight on man but he delights in his mercy toward man. In Micah 7, 18 and 19, it says, Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighted in mercy. He will turn again, he will have compassion upon subdue our iniquities. Thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. He delighted in mercy. And I don't think you will find a single verse in the Bible that says that he delighted in wrath and punishment and judgment. But you can find many places which either state plainly or clearly indicate that he delighted in mercy. And it's his joy to show mercy to us. In Lamentations 3, 32 to 33, it says, But though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion, according to the multitude of his mercies. For he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. God does not grieve nor afflict men willingly, but he does so only upon great provocation. And if you think of this illustration for a minute of honeybees and we know that the chief business, the main business of the honeybee is to gather honey or to gather pollen, I mean, and turn it into honey. That's their chief delight, you could say. And a lot of us may think that it's people 
but it isn't. That's not the chief delight of honeybees. It's simply that if you provoke them, they will sting you. And for provocation, a honeybee will sting, but that's not his business. That's of his life. It is not his joy in life to sting us. But his purpose, his main occupation, his principal idea, his reading is to produce honey. His chief delight is to show mercy. But upon occasion, after great provocation, he must show his wrath as well. So in the same way, God, he wants to show the world what his kingdom looks like on earth. And the question is, are we doing a job with that? Are we, are, we, are we showing the world what his kingdom looks like? Because he prayed in his prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he wants to show to the world. A, a people that is separate, a people that do things differently, a people that have a different mindset, that have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. And if we're not walking in these ways, God punishes. It says in Jeremiah 44, 22, so that the Lord could no longer bear because of the abominations which he have committed. So there comes a limit when God continually extend mercy. When the abominations become overwhelming, then his wrath follows. And we see this throughout the Bible. We see it with Nineveh. We see it with Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it in different different times. And we all know this, this, this verse in, in Jonah, which strikes me, and again shows of his mercy, where Jonah says, he, um, he says this, he says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and, I re- and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Imagine, he, he didn't want to go because he figured, what's the point? They'll repent anyway and God will grant them forgiveness. It's, it's quite something. But you can again see the heart of God. You can again see the heart of God. And we see it, we see this mercy extended to King David, to the children of Israel, to King Ahab, to King Nebuchadnezzar is a good one to think about. And and even his mercy to us. In Romans 5, 6 to 8, it says, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when you ponder that, you ask yourself the question, 
did I deserve to go to hell? Did I deserve hell? And there's actually a lot of people that said, no, I did not deserve hell. I don't deserve hell in any way, shape, or form. I'm not a bad person. But the truth is that we do do deserve hell. That's the bottom line. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned. And all of us deserve hell. And uh, outside of Christ and what Christ has done for us, we deserve hell. And it's not easy to hear, but I believe it's true. It is what Christ in mercy did and is doing for us that saves us, forgiving us our sins and cleansing us with his blood and dwelling within us that makes us righteous and accepted as God's children. We yield our hearts and lives for our use in his kingdom and walk in faith and obedience to his commands and teachings. We cannot boast in anything else because salvation is a free gift. We didn't and couldn't earn it. And it comes from his grace and mercy, but he saved us for something. He saved us for something, for a purpose, a reason. He saved us so that he can use us. And that's the bottom line. He saved us so that he can use us. He didn't necessarily save us from hell, which is also true. But he saved us so that he can speak through us and work through us. And it all depends how much, um, it all depends how much we surrender and that he is able to do this, how much we surrender. He saved us unto good works that he performs through us. He continuously says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and I will give you rest. Take my, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open unto me, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. He is constantly calling. He is constantly calling us. Especially if, we're, if we are blinded to our own sins. He is constantly calling us to come to him. And we cannot abuse this mercy that he is extending to us. And do not think that you can go on in sin because of his mercy. Because this is to make mercy your enemy. And when mercy becomes the prosecutor, then all are convicted. None can escape. To sin because mercy abounds is the devil's logic. And yet that's what many people are doing. They think, well... I'll be saved just before I die. I want to sow my wild oats now. But it doesn't work that way. This is just like one who wounds his head because he's got a box full of bandages to put on it. 
Now, that's just a sensible, isn't it? Like one who slashes his head with a hammer and says, well, I wanted to use these bandages I've got here. I've got a box full of bandages. So he bangs himself on the head because of it. Now, that's the kind of logic it is to sin, thinking that later, because of God's mercy, you can get it straightened out anyway. But mercy abused always turns to anger. And that's not how mercy works. And we can see that in the life of Judas Iscariot once again. That all through that time, mercy was extended, even to the very end. But he somehow found himself incapable of understanding that God is willing to forgive his sin. It wasn't there. He found himself understanding or blinded to the fact that God can forgive his sin. A short story here. It says, Dr. E.J. Cronin was raised in a strict tradition that if one did wrong, they were to be punished. Justice demanded it. In 1921, he took the post of medical officer in an isolated district in North Cumberland, England. He was young and inexperienced, but though trembling, he one night performed a tracheotomy on the throat of a small boy choking with diphtheria. He inserted the tube and gave a sigh of relief as the boy's lungs filled with air. He then went to bed, leaving the sick boy in the care of a nurse. Sometime in the night, the tube filled with mucus and the boy began to choke. Instead of cleaning the tube, as any good nurse should have done, the girl fled in panic to get the doctor. When Dr. Cronin arrived, the patient was dead. His anger blazed at such blundering negligence, and he decided right there he would ruin her career. He wrote a bitter letter to the county health board and read it to her with burning indignation. The 19-year-old Welsh girl listened in silence, half-fainting with shame and misery, but she finally stammered, give me another chance. He shook his head and sealed the envelope as she slipped away. That night he could not sleep. Give me another chance kept echoing through his mind. Deep inside he knew he wanted to send that letter for revenge and not because of his love for justice. With morning came the light of mercy. With morning came the light of mercy as well, and he tore up the letter. Twenty years later, he wrote, Today the nurse who erred so fatally is the matron of the largest children's home in Wales. Her career has been a model of service and devotion. Mercy, even on the human level, has saved many lives from being tragically wasted because of some sin, error, failure, or folly. None are so godlike as those who can exercise the virtue of mercy. And I guess, how do we react when we find someone caught in sin? What do we do? We can be like David at times when the prophet Nathan told him 
of the rich man who took the poor man's only lamb and killed it for his meal. And David said, this man should die. He deserves to die. Am I quick to pass judgment and yet find myself guilty of doing similar things myself? And that's what I often think about. That's what often comes up in my mind. When I admonish the children or admonish others, I find that a lot of times actually I'm guilty of the same thing. That's why I said at the beginning, I, I feel that we're missing out on something. We're missing out on just lifting each other up and listening to one another and uh, praying with one another. And this paraphrased story, I'm going to read that paraphrased story of the woman caught in adultery. It's found in, I'm not sure where it is. Shame on you. Shame on you. The insults fell on her like blows. Imagine it. She was married, but not to the man whose arms she had been in. Suddenly the door burst open. Angry men dragged her and her secret sin out into the street. Adulteress, adulteress. The words pierced her like arrows. The gathering crowd gawked at her with scorn. Her life was undone in a moment by her own doing. It was about to be crushed. They were talking about stoning. She cried out, you're going to stone me. God have mercy. But God's verdict on her case seemed clear. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. Both shall die. She was going to die. But where was he? No time to think. She was half pushed and half dragged through Jerusalem. She was despised and rejected as one from whom men hide their faces. Why are we entering the temple? Suddenly she was thrust into the face of a young man. Someone behind her said, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Teacher looked at her, then at her accusers and bent down. Why was he riding in the dirt? Impatient prosecutors demanded a ruling. He stood back up. She held her breath, eyes on her feet. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. The crowd hushed, confused as she glanced at him. He was riding in the dirt again. She heard mumbling and disgusted grunts from behind, then shuffling. People were leaving. No one was grabbing her. It took some courage to look around. Her accusers were gone. She turned to the teacher. He was standing, staring at her. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Forget for the moment 
the self-righteousness of the accusers and the apparent injustice of the adulterous man's absence. Did you hear what Jesus said? This woman's guilt was real. She committed the crime of adultery. God, through Moses, commanded her death. But God, the Son, simply said, neither do I condemn you. How could he possibly say that? If God violates his own commandment, we have a huge problem. Is God unjust? Absolutely not. God fully intended for this sin of adultery to be punished to the full extent of his law. But she would not bear her punishment. She would go free. This young teacher would be punished for her. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And you know what? Whoever can go walk away from this and continue in sin, You can say you've made your own bed. Because we will have no excuse. We'll have absolutely no excuse when we stand before God. And that is why we do not hold on to our sin. Because if we do, And mercy does not help us in any way. And I think if we could just get a glimpse of who God is, a glimpse of how how much he loves us, how much he cares for us, and he never does anything to hurt us. And yet we go, we just go our own stubborn ways. <clears throat> I know for a fact, for myself, I will have no excuse. I've heard it all. I've heard everything there is hear about, you know, these things. I am not ignorant. And I know I will have no excuse. Because he did, he does all of these things in love to win us. So, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God?
I don't want to be hard on you. I mean, I, it's not my intention. <clears throat> I mean, I don't want everything to be just, you know, doom and gloom. But at the end of the day, it's what Brother Willie spoke about, that singleness of heart. Is it actually there? There. Do I hunger after God? My hungering after God, that's the simple question. Am I hungering after God? Or do I like uh, things the way they are? God's mercy only extends so far until he has to do something with us. And I'm not saying that we now all of a sudden have to produce something. But it's simple steps. It's simple steps where we simply come before God and we say, Lord, I don't have a desire for your word. I don't hunger after you. That's where it starts. It starts with honesty and simply sharing how you feel in your heart. And I just wish we could do it, you know, together somehow. So <clears throat> thank you. God bless you.